Welcome back to the Light in the Attic podcast. I'm Jackie. And I'm Hillary. This week we're going to talk about Acetone, our newest release. Acetone are a Los Angeles band from the 90s, and I am a Los Angeles human from the 90s, and I've never heard of Acetone, uh, or I hadn't heard of Acetone until this project. Had you heard of them? Um, I had heard about their previous band, Spin Out, because I knew of Spin Out from their time on Delicious Vinyl, which was an old hip-hop label right. uh, that Mike <laughs> Ross and Matt Dyke started in the late 80s. But I didn't realize that Spin Out kind of became Acetone, hmm. even though it's a completely different band, but yeah. I didn't realize it was associated at all. Right. It was, um, it was the band, it was Acetone plus a different lead singer. Right. And then basically once that lead singer, Tom Henry, I think his name was, was out of the picture, then Acetone sort of did its own thing and realized that they were sort of maybe better off without him. Yeah, uh, Spin Out was really cool, but they were way more scuzzy, grungy, kind of more... They were kind of like flamboyant, like... Yeah, like like a party band. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And Acetone, we're going to try and explain Acetone, but it's really hard to explain. But Acetone's way more complex and subdued yeah and this was in um spin out was in 1991 um and so i think it was still like hair metal days in los angeles maybe (laughs) (laughs) i was one year old but that's what sam sweet said (laughs) hair metal and sam sweet he pretty much is the man to talk about when you talk about kind of music history in that period in LA because he's a friend of ours who also did the liner notes for our Heartwind Highways release, mm-hmm. which... And um, Greetings from Suicide Bridge, or Songs from Suicide Songs Bridge. Songs from Suicide Bridge, yeah. The, those are both amazing liner notes, but he is like this contemporary LA cultural and geographic historian. Mm-hmm. And he's so good at aligning locations with the culture that was happening at that time. and Right. And so Sam is the reason why um, we started working on this project. Sam is is good friends with um, Matt, the Light in the Attic founder. And um, Sam has been working on a book about acetone for like nine years. Yeah. And so Sam told Matt about it. And I think um, – I think like the the moment that won Matt over was I think Sam took Matt for a drive in Highland Park, which uh, for non Angelinos is like a super hip neighborhood now. But back in the 90s was kind of like no man's land. Um, But Acetone hung out there in the 90s. And um so Sam took Matt on a tour of where they used to hang out and told him all about the band um and like stories he'd heard from Mark from the band who he'd been interviewing and they listened to the band's music the whole time at night and it just like that sold it yeah it blew Matt away so for the podcast um for this episode about acetone it was Matt's idea that we go on a ride along with Sam as well And we brought along Mark from the band, Mark Lightcap. Yeah, Mark Lightcap, the um, guitarist and um, sometimes vocalist, backup vocalist. And yeah, so so we met Sam and Mark 
at um, La Abeja, this Mexican restaurant in Super Highland Park. For hole in the wall. <laughs> it was so great. There was like three wood. stooges. Yeah, the everything. owner. The owner is apparently obsessed with the three stooges. So behind the counter, there was just like three stooges memorabilia everywhere, and there was like wood paneling and. Um, you could totally imagine 90s indie musician dudes, rock dudes yeah. hanging out, eating enchiladas. <laughs> Along with like families, you know. Um, and apparently the restaurant has been there for 48 years. Um, so we met there and then we got in uh, Mark's 1984 Volvo station wagon complete with an eight track player and no ac no ac and it was like a 93 degree day (laughs) very comfortable (laughs) (laughs) um and he drove us around highland park and told us cool stories and sam kind of interviewed mark and it was a wild ride so a little more about the band formed in 1992 as we said sort of out of the ashes of spin out they were formed in the CalArts scene. Uh, Mark Lightcap, who we mentioned, was at CalArts studying tuba, exploring experimental music. And Richie Lee, who was the singer and bassist for the band, was there studying painting. Richie was friends with Steve Hadley, who was a surfer from Newport Beach, where Richie was from. And um, they ended up one of them was living in this like little um, pool house sh- shed, basically thing in the back of a house in Highland Park that they drove us past, and that's where they would practice. And they had kind of like a really mellow, sleepy '90s sound. Yeah, I I always tell people if you're into like spiritualized or Mazzy Star, they're not quite the same, but. I think if you like those bands, you'd be really into acetone. Yeah. And they were as good as, if not better than a lot of these bands, but they never quite hit their stride because the fate of the band was kind of cut short. When um, Richie Lee committed suicide in 2001. Mm -hmm. Um, But before that, the band actually had some some success they toured with oasis and the verve and mazzy star and um wasn't there another one spiritualized spiritualized yeah 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 they were good buddies with jason pierce yeah um they told this funny story about how one year oasis was opening for them and the acetone dudes were like oh my god what is this like derivative horrible (laughs) british pop rock and then the next year, Oasis had blown up and Acetone was opening for Oasis. <laughs> the tables had turned. <laughs> um, they were a, you know, somewhat famous band in the 90s, but then they just, you know, their their career was cut short and they were just kind of weirdly forgotten. Yeah, a lot of people that they toured with, especially like Hope Sandoval from Mazzy Star, they cite them as being one of their favorite bands. Richard Ashcroft, Hope Sandoval, Jason Pierce, all those people cite them as their favorites. Yeah, Hope Sandoval, we have, she says, Acetone are one of my all-time favorite bands. Their music is still as electrifying and beautiful now as it was back then. It's it's a lot like a lot of the music we put out where you just hear it and you think, why wasn't this bigger? Yeah. It should have been bigger 
and it wasn't. And it's a damn shame, but it's really cool that we can bring this back with this anthology that we've put together that's a mix of tracks that have been released, but also a lot of the tracks have not been released before. Right. Seven of the tracks have um, never been released, and we think that they're better than the stuff that even has been out before. So this project uh, is comprised of the book that Sam wrote, which is called Hadley Lee Lightcap. It's about a 250-page nonfiction book about acetone and their relationship with the city of los angeles and with each other and their place in this really changing landscape that was la right yeah exactly um and then uh our release is an anthology of the band that is the companion to the book and um it has seven unreleased tracks and um yeah that's called acetone 1991 to two nope 1992 to 2001. <laughs> Something really exciting. Yes. Is that in November, they're going to play a show. And even though Richie is no longer with us, the remaining members, Mark and Steve, are going to play a live show in LA. As Acetone. As Acetone with Hope Sandoval of Mazzy Star. As guest singer. So, yeah, yeah, so that's going to be an early November venue TBA. We'll update you on the location when we find out on our Twitter, Facebook, blog, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. Speaking of, rate, review, subscribe? Yeah, please. (laughs) We have like five ratings on iTunes and we need more because I think there are more than five of you listening. I hope there are. Are there? Will you tell us? (laughs) Please rate, review, and subscribe. (laughs) Um, Tell your friends. Anyways. Let's let's listen to that ride along we did. Yeah. Landmark yeah, over here. Self-realization, um, which is like right near the, it's like above the Southwest Museum. Yeah, we could. Uh, well, that's a kind of awesome drive up there, so we could we could roll up over the. <laughs> Let's yeah. take this old ass car up the steepest, <laughs> narrowest roads we can totally. find right off the bat. After all, Mercury is in retrograde, so yeah, what yeah. can True. go wrong? Yeah. But we're just because we're just leaving La Beja. I thought maybe you could uh we could introduce la beja a little maybe have you i never heard the story of what like your earliest memories of la beja or your for your entree to la beja well you know i mean steve uh kind of discovered it he was living in this little guest house up here in mount washington on crane on crane and um and he was the first one that uh took us there but then you know I found out that my father-in-law who lives over here on in Montecito Heights 
you know, had been eating there since the, you know, since the 70s. Yeah, they so. said it's been around for 48 years. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's the best carne arbata in town. It'll make, definitely, paraphrase Jonathan Gold, it will make you want to throw rocks at all other <laughs> arbata. <laughs> He called it What's cowboy it? food too, famously, <laughs> I think, which is uh, almost—it does feel like chuck wagon food, sort yeah, of. Totally. All right, here's the uh, Southwest Museum here, which I don't think it's open now. I think they're. I think it, it's open go, one day a one week. One day a week. Yeah, it's always—it's yeah. been in limbo for a long time, though. But uh, and then there used to be these, like this tunnel here, has these really awesome dioramas in there that. Um, it used to just be open all the time because that was the corridor that you would walk through to get to the museum and there would be sort of like moth-eaten, you know, mouse shit, yeah. <laughs> like infested uh, dioramas. What I, what I was thinking about too, as we were talking about doing this drive is, Here's I believe Crane, this Crane month- Boulevard, all right. Well, well this, what the hell, we'll just go up, drive so by Steve's old house. Doesn't this month mark the 32nd anniversary of your arrival in Los Angeles? August 1985? I, I, I'll, I'll trust you to answer that question, Sam. Well, let's pretend Sam, it is. Uh, Sam knows more about my life than I do at, at this point. so I'm the Robert I, Caro I, 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 to your Lyndon B. Johnson. I, yeah, I've just outsourced my memory to Sam to I think, make room for other thoughts. I think so, a lot of people could I'm say that about Sam. Past. Carl and Jesse used to live in that house there. Oh, really? Yeah. That was during the Did riots. Okay, so our good friends, the Bronsons, uh, Carl is mentioned. I guess we can talk about this because, you know, Carl is a character in the book. My dear friend, Carl Bronson. There's uh, another person that we play music with, but they were living here during the 92 was it 92 the riots mm -hmm. so this is where we, we ran from our house in silver lake or our apartment in silver lake and hid out here i thought you riots. went to lone pond well we came here first because our neighborhood was getting really yeah. sketchy and uh and then we came up here and this was where the smoke was just so thick you couldn't even breathe and this it, meaning mount washington like mount washington is that right? it was just like you know this cloud of smoke you could just see the whole city just you know just like helicopters flying around smoke coming up and just like a black cloud and that's when we just got in the car and drove up to the sierras <laughs> with the clothes on our back desperate for clear <laughs> was, air desperate for i was like you know what well because that was right when they called in the uh national guard you know and we were I figured it was either going to just stop or it was going to turn into a total bloodbath. Either way, just didn't want to be here when it went down. So, Was there stuff active on the streets around here and, or no, not so it much? No, it, it was mellow here. Yeah, but um, in Silver Lake, I know there was stuff. And yeah, yeah, totally. So. And, may, and maybe just to set it up, too, as we go through these old things, you, you're a kid from suburban Philadelphia who comes to California, which is like the equivalent of going to Mars in your background right. as an 18-year-old to go study tuba in the music program at CalArts, which was at that time a 
respected and known art school, but still very much sort of a, um, how would you describe that? I guess CalArts in 1985. Uh, a haven for freaks. A haven I for mean, it freaks. Was, it was known for, you know, famous for nudity at poolside and, uh, you know, rampant drug use and just all right. manner of... Um, Famously, it was Walt Disney's dream, dying wish was to build this Caltech of the arts, which would be sort of an interdisciplinary school that would produce future Disney employees. And then he croaked uh, like uh, two years before it was set to open and through a series of mishaps, a bunch of completely radical avant-garde artists kind of got a hold of the funds. And by the time the Disney board realized what was going on they had established like the most radical yeah. art school in the country yeah and and then it sort of ran on that energy for for quite a long time right. including up and up up through the 80s but one, one of the things that i'm interested in that the book's about is you know there's a famous generation of cal arts artists from the 70s who went to new york but then there's a lesser known generation of characters that came out of the school in the 80s when you were there and uh, acetone was one of the exponents of that generation and um, not that everyone from that foment became famous but there were certainly a lot of characters came out of that foment of the school at that time and a lot of them sort of float through the story of acetone in LA and Northeast LA and even now, it's it cracks me up, like, how many connections there are. Like, if we drive around Highland Park, you're just going to be pointing out houses and studios of people you've known since you got to CalArts yeah. in 1985. And if you kind of know that CalArts history, all of a sudden, there's, like, a map that appears over... That has a lot to do with this part of L.A. Um, and so that's just a setup as we pass Carl and Jessica's house. And so if we're, ta amazing. if we're talking about Highland Park as sort of the nucleus of Northeast L.A. and this place where your band was, you know, part of the settlement, how, how would you describe this area to someone whose only image of L.A. is, you know, the Chinese theater or Santa Monica or something like that? How would I describe it back, back then? How would you describe it back then when you first encountered it? Yeah, it was it? just really beat and sleepy, and um, I think this—I think Steve's place is right up here. It was like the back house, maybe to this house. Um, you know, I mean, if you just look at this, this is what it looked like: this weed-choked guardrail <laughs> to the but, side. <laughs> but meeting this kind of majestic, this like weirdly majestic area of LA yeah. that's between the mountains and the city. I, I yeah. always think the kind of the most amazing part of this part of town is just the topography because it's this weird intertidal zone between the real mountain, like the San Gabriel Mountains and the city and there's, it's really built into all these low rolling hills and there's all these kind of hidden streets and stairwells and there's still dirt roads up here Yeah, and so uh it is, I, th I think especially back then it was probably this mix of just kind of horrendously woebegone meeting like this scruffy urban wilderness paradise. Yeah, sort of <laughs> mansions and shanty towns kind of 
side by side. Well, where, there, I guess there was, uh, in your time, the other thing I kind of like about the Astone story is that it, uh, you can sort of trace these changes in LA over that period from sort of the eastward expansion of LA. Yeah. Tell us yeah. sort of the circuit when you first arrived in LA and then how that sort of shifted out this way. Yeah, well, it was all in Hollywood. There were no clubs on the east side at all, you know, so it was... How did people regard this part of town that you would have been hanging out with at that time? Uh, As totally off the map? Well, let me see. I knew uh, our friend Debbie lived in, uh, lived in Echo Park, but that was just a place where you did not go. It was, you know, it was like the just most blood-soaked <laughs> part like of the city. Yeah, you just would not, you know... It was just a truly frightening. Uh, like when you heard the name Echo Park, it was. You just was thought like, no fucking way. No you know, way. It's, it's like it's like, like it's like Williamsburg. Like Williamsburg used to be like that. Yeah. You know, like it, it, you know, you just wouldn't go there. Um, but you know, Debbie King and Cannon Hudson yeah. lived there. Um, you know, in this place that they were paying like two hundred dollars a month for or something. Yeah. Uh, and then. Um, and then, yeah, Silver Lake was all like, you know, just working class and and old Queens. It was like the old gay neighborhood. Uh, but all the shows were in were in Hollywood. The Strip, you know, all the all the clubs. That was were still, still going. There. Yeah, no, that was the heyday of. of you the came strip. out here to play hair metal, right? I did, yeah. And uh, you got no. here just a minute too late. One lane road. Wow. All right, let's check this out. <laughs> Here this is go. classic. Now right, here Washington, we go. Right? It's still oh. got dirt roads here. I think this is for horses. Are you taking pictures? <laughs> Are you getting, getting this? Yeah. Right. Oh, so, this is somebody's house up there. Or does this connect? Does this go through? Come on, Mark. Just tell them you lived here in the 90s. It's yeah, not a problem. Right. That's cool, man. I was here in the 96. But I always think that, I mean, the bottom line is, the, I always think this is kind of one of the really special areas of L.A., and even though you have musicians and bands associated with all these pockets of L.A., whether it's the Valley or Laurel Canyon or Watts, you, uh, I don't think anyone really attaches anything specific to Northeast L.A., but when you learn about acetone, it really is a, an example of a band who's story and, and sort of the, the sound of their music for me is really tied into the feel of of this part of town I mean of LA in general but particularly northeast LA which is sort of this area between the mountains and the city um, but you were never thinking of yourselves that way oh I don't know I mean we were we always thought of this as our as our kind of you know our secret lair, you know. I mean, we were really into living in this place that was just away from the, you know, all the groovy groovers. Yeah. Yeah, I always think that's kind of one of the things about Astone, or I guess every band sort of, I always think of every band sort of builds a house that they want to live in, <laughs> proverbially. Yeah. Like they pick the land and then 
the sound of the music is sort of the house they build that they want to stay in and uh, each person in the band sort of helps design and furnish this house and some some bands build houses that a lot of people want to visit and live in and other bands live houses that literally only they want to <laughs> yeah. go to that's us boy and uh i was pictured acetone <laughs> as sort of this like kind of one of these houses on these hillsides sort of like that on that dead end street well where it's just you like, know i always uh it's like those houses you see that the only thing that's holding them up are the people living yeah. inside them and if the people leave the house like it'll just collapse on itself Parsley of Astone is just like this really decrepit house hanging by a thread, or, but it gets like the beautiful, most beautiful light, and it has like this incredible view. But the house itself is just <laughs> barely, barely standing up. Yeah, well, I always think of acetone as a porta potty parked yeah. on a job site. Somewhere. <laughs> that too. Yeah. But with a really good view. With a really good view. All right, now we're getting into self-realization. Mm -hmm. Now this is like the... Uh, just like come out into Shangri-La. Yeah, this crested. is... I think this is This is, is it. like the Beverly yeah. Hills in Northeast LA. Yeah. When you drive around here, do you immediately have acetone sense memories or is it just general memories of all kinds of things from your yeah, life? Yeah, no, it's just periods? general. We're pretty close to the Terrace 49. Yeah, so we're on Terrace 49, where we used to live. This is the, uh, the Coptic Church of, of Northeast LA. So if you're lucky, you'll see these dudes walking around on the street who are dead ringers for the Pharisees and Jesus Christ Superstar. Crazy black robes and tall hats. Or maybe you'll just see kids playing basketball. Yeah. Or the Pharisees <laughs> playing basketball. <laughs> Yo, bro. Is that Esperanza Spalding in that Jeep? Probably. I just saw a face in the middle of a beach ball sized afro <laughs> filled up the whole car. Have you and her talked about doing something? Yeah, we were just talking this morning, talking about doing some stuff. Something for Blue Note, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I always think Mark, Mark, I'm always waiting for Mark to make a solo jazz guitar record, like one of those old Barney Kessel records. Moods of Cubby. Yeah, right. Won't do it. What about Just Tuba? Just Tuba. Good name for it, actually. Yeah, right, right. That's, I'll, I'll get straight to work on it, you guys. One man, five, two. All right. Here's where I used to live in this jungle here. Up my, in this driver. This is it's my pal Steve Goodfriend's house. Steve Goodfriend, who was took over for Steve Hadley as the drummer for Acetone at the very end. I've got two of my dogs buried in the backyard there. So this is where this is sort of where you live towards the end of Acetone's lifespan, and also yeah. where the band practiced up until it dissolved. Yeah, we used a, to practice in an old pottery studio behind the garage there um so beautiful little almost just like a little one room cabin and you you can't really see it from here but the way it's situated when you're in the studio and get this little peekaboo view of the mountains so it yeah feels very uh it's got kind of that nice rustic feel that certain parts of mount washington have yep it's a great spot 
And Mar and uh, yeah, good friend said that uh, the country squire just sat there inert for years, warding off evil spirits. I think good friend actually expressed that he did think it it warded off. <laughs> I don't know if he meant. Hey, Nietzsche, how's it going? Hey, I've been good, man. <laughs> yeah, good to see you. Yeah. Who's that? That's Nicho, our <laughs> next door neighbor. <laughs> Super excellent guy. What'd you like our, about playing our, in that room? Uh, you know, that room had perfect sound. It was basically like a cube. It was all just plywood walls. So it had this, you know, this, everything just sounded great in there always. Um, that's where we recorded the Dix Lessig. Your you other know. band besides yeah. Astone. So that, uh, Wichita Lineman was recorded there. Well, one of the things I love about Mark's story and one of the things that's sort of like um, makes the Astone story a parable about... Oh, man, that's a real... Slap a title on this baby, and then all of a sudden, you know. Yep. I'm into it. What do you love about Mark's story? Oh. Can you say it? Well, he, Dick Slessig, <laughs> the two, the two guys he played with in Dick Slessig combo, were his best friends from Cal Arts, and that band predated Acetone. And one of my favorite quotes from Mark is he said when he first played with Dick Slessig, he thought, these are the guys I want to be playing with when I'm 50. And he didn't end up actually playing with those guys. <laughs> he did, of course, after Astone broke up. But so it's sort of like, yeah, like, like meeting your true love when you're 19, then marrying a totally different woman at 21, then she dies. <laughs> When you're in your 30s, then you go back and like get together with your original true love or something. It just is a funny story about like how, why you end up playing with the people you do, and how you don't always end up playing with the people yeah. that you like the most. <laughs> All right, so let's see. That's it. This blue one. Yep, there it is. Okay, so this is where it all began. That's the, the pool house. That's right back there behind the little blue tarp. So Steve Hadley rented the little converted garage, basically, in yeah. back. And, and it was some, like, French harpist that lived in this house. Law student or and something. I, yeah, I don't know what the hell she was doing in Highland Vivian. Park. Yeah, she was, uh, you know, I don't know. It was a funny scene. Do you remember coming over here for the very first time? I don't. To check it out nope and this is that was like 1991 or something sam. earlier that was like 1975 sam yeah. <laughs> 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 the best quote for you later <laughs> trying to get a date right mark's like i don't know man it was the 90s 
The world was changing, the man. The world was changing, man. Recycling was just getting going. The fucking lamest decade ever. It was pretty dumb. Really, you know, to see like 90s retro coming yeah. coming around. It's like, really? You could pick any decade to fixate on. You're picking that one. It was such a silly time. The I'd say it wasn't even silly enough. Like, the 80s were silly. How would you describe the 90s? Boring. Like well, fucking... give us something more quippy than that. Uh, Mark? Jim, Put- Jim Putnam told me the 90s were a time when it wasn't cool to be happy. <laughs> uh, and then someone else said, well, Jim Putnam's never been happy. <laughs> I don't know. Jim seems pretty happy now. Yeah, I know. They're, yeah. They're, they're some other know. mean CalArts person yeah, said that. Because yeah, that's well. all you guys do is say mean uh, things. Yeah, about yeah, that's true. The cat in distress. All right. So you didn't live over here in the early days. Steve did, and you'd drive over here and hang. Right. Yeah, we lived in a fourplex over in Silver Lake. And it was uh, six fifty a month. <laughs> and coming over here was really like going to the boonies. Yeah. No, I mean you literally could not get a cup of coffee that wasn't like donut just shop the coffee. shittiest donut shop coffee. Um, and you didn't when you probably even at that time when you would say, "Oh, we're practicing over at Steve's place in Highland Park," some people would just not even. They wouldn't even know register. what you're talking about. Yeah. But amazingly, um, let's see, and there was never traffic on the boulevard, right? Never, yeah. never, ever, ever. It has gotten trafficy. It's really crazy. But you know, amazing. But how miraculously, the Azteca de Oro liquor store, just where we bought our liquor, is still there, selling <laughs> liquor. What was your liquor of choice back then? Tecate. Tecate. And uh, Presidente. Presidente. Brandy. Brandy. All right. So let's see. The pawn shop is still there, but the guy who ran, who used to run the pawn shop was an old, like, music head who had been here since the, like, the 60s. This guy, Doug. I forget his last name. And uh, so you could really geek out on music with him. Did you get some scores there? No, not really, but it was the only place where you could buy guitar strings for miles. Um, and so he just totally gouged you on guitar strings. And, um, but he was, a, he was a cool guy. And... Pool Hall. Zeppelin seems like the old school Highland Park store now, but that opened way later. What's, what's really funny to me is that there's... You played music here for all those years, named an album York Boulevard when no one knew where it was, and then 25 years later, it becomes hip. Three record stores open up here, and none of them carry acetone. <laughs> Love it. I know, and now everyone's going to think our we titled the album York Boulevard because it's such a groovy street, when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, so that's that's where the crack dealers live in that house, so we don't want to linger too long. We're they're still there, you know, it's, if you need crack, that's the spot. Really? Right next to the car wash. 
Noted. Here's the Kelly studio. Yeah, so now... You're never going to make this left turn. All right, yeah, so here's the former Mike Kelly studio, now turned into another mediocre mid-century furniture store. How, when did you work there? What were the uh, years? I worked there from 2005-ish to... Uh, till 2012 so basically the last seven that's where yeah. Mike was based the last seven years of his life and a few other places around here I guess we should uh should go to Cal Arts let's swing by um <laughs> that would be let's swing by can you imagine uh, Huarache and get some and get some uh some aguas yeah they're open they got the best over there there's this awesome band that plays in this shed here that yeah. we would hear when we were working over the, in the Metal Kelly heads? studio. No, they were just like really shitty garage band that I totally loved. Like they were, they were too shitty that they didn't even have a garage. They had a shed. <laughs> just, just relate really, to that. Really great. Shed rock. Yep. Where'd you buy tacos back in the acetone era? Where was the eats spot? Uh, let's see. Because Baraches wasn't around then. Yeah. I mean, Rambo's down on... Rambo's on e Eagle Rock. On Eagle Rock is the spot. Although that was maybe a little later. Um, Alright. We we'll guard the... Yeah. Oh, wow. Right out front. Yeah, totally. Lowered samurai yeah, again it. for the first time. Oh man, look at that samurai! Look at that fucking shit, shining and never the sun. see those tricked out lowrider style like that. Amazing. What, what's your favorite car you've ever owned? Uh, well, I don't know. Might be this one. Why? Probably, in, probably the country squire. In the book it I wrote be, about the country squire. extensively about your 1967 country squire. I know, I'm just Sort of becomes an avatar. Uh, but I, I am curious, what, because you were so in love with that country squire, which was this horrible beast of a car that everyone else was just completely re revolted by, and then you loved with all your heart. And then eventually, you fell in love with this Volvo. How'd that happen? Well, I'm a station wagon guy, right, Sam? All goes back I, to your parent, barring your parents' car. Gotta have a station wagon. And the Country Squire is the station wagoniest station wagon that ever stationed right. its wagon in station wagon town. I mean, they're, you know, the fake wood paneling, the whole deal you know it's kind of what i grew up with kind of yeah well it's a I, complete I, subversion of growing well, up I, I as up, like a post-war I, I grew up in a 72 mercury montego you know didn't have the wood paneling so this is 67 a little more a little more slender you know cars got tubbier in the 70s um but 
you know, I don't know. It was just a, a joy. I loved it, you know. We had these crazy, you know, when we lived up in Mammoth, just like road trip up to Reno with like seven people in the thing, and it was just like a living room on wheels, just total like rolling. <laughs> and you've rolling party. Part of the Mark Lightcop aesthetic is just is always to find uh, this intense beauty and affection in something that is going to make other people completely repulsed. That's a theme. It's like find find like the most heinous thing, and then love it to death <laughs> but you know that car that was that's the car from the thomas crown affair right here. right it's, you know so it's, it's uh you're on the right on the right here on this side it's her right, take a right. ah. Sorry. <laughs> in this little talk of these are country squire colors yeah right this is the exact color yeah. well this is a little more avocado Crack dealer, <laughs> Avenue 53 at Figaro. I want the best. Make sure we get the best possible levels. I'm happy to stay here forever. I just want to make sure we're getting the golden tones here. Um, so there was this article from the Columbia Spectator that I read from 1993. And it was an interview with you guys. It seemed like there was a lot of um, not wanting to put yourselves in boxes that was a recurring theme not wanting to be categorized or pointed at as being a certain type of music and people will do that anyways of course do you still feel like that now do you feel like you could be categorized as what you're saying slow core sad core I don't think so. I mean, you know, I mean, it's really, the, the, our second record was really, you know, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I see what, how people would, you know, th there were certainly tracks that would easily fit into the, what's thought of as the slow core model, but, um, but it just, you know, I always really just kind of hated all those bands. You know, I mean, we, we always thought of ourselves like, you know, if you listen to any band, you know, like the Velvets or Led Zeppelin or, I don't know, they, they had slow songs, they had fast songs, you know. The fast songs <laughs> became, got fewer and farther between as, as time went on, but, um, but yeah, I feel like it's, it's just as non- conforming to the to those kind of norms now as it was then how would you describe the acetone sound to someone who's never heard it before um yeah i you know god it's that's hard i don't know we, you know 
we're, we're really into this band called Hui Ohana, right? Who are um, a Hawaiian trio, uh, but really beautiful, like electric guitar playing and harmony singing. And we were kind of obsessed with this record of theirs that we had. And we're sort of consciously trying to combine that with a lot of um, like thrift store exotica that we were listening to and then like Curtis Mayfield and J.J. Kale and, uh, you know, Stephen Ritchie were really into Spaceman 3, Velvet Underground, you know, classic rock and the Everly Brothers, you know, country music, the Beach Boys. So, you know, if you just put all that in a Vitamix and <laughs> let it sit out in the sun for a while, uh, I guess that's what you would get. All right. Yeah. And um, just a quick follow up. Uh, one of the other questions in that interview, they asked what bands currently that you guys liked and the answer was again uh i don't listen to anything right now <laughs> he said i don't listen to any music right now nothing is good right now nothing i think it said nothing out there is good um, so i was gonna ask you since you're a different person with different opinions if i were to ask you now <laughs> If you were to have a current band open for you on tour, who would you want that band to be? Um, <clears throat> well, I would want it, and Mike, if you're listening to this, I would want it to be this guy, Mike Reed, who's an organ player who posts his videos on YouTube. And um, he's older than I am. He's probably well into his 60s but he's just a super kick-ass uh organ player uh who i have a record of you know his weird like lounge record called i believe in music from the uh 70s but i would say the fact that he's has a huge youtube presence now would qualify him as a as a new band or a contemporary band and he's the one who I want to have uh, open for us when we do our show here in LA. You got to check this dude out. You got to check Reed. out Mike Reed. There's a video of him doing Caravan mm -hmm. that's mind-blowing. He's a monster. So Mike, if you're listening, we're coming. come to LA. I think he lives in Ohio. Maybe we can get him. Um, could could one of you guys tell the story of um, the lamp show versus the light show at the Verve? Yeah, we were, you know, we did our first tour with the Verve. They were, they were called Verve then, or they were just in the process of having to change their name to the Verve. But, um, you know, they had just no holds barred psychedelic light show, total English style, you know, arena rock, psychedelic you know, which was super intimidating for us. And we realized we had to do something and we couldn't compete with them on their level. So we had to just create a level of our own that was just in sharp contrast to them. You know, we rehearsed in a little bedroom and our music came out of this really kind of intimate environment of thrift store accoutrement 
And so we just went with that. We just went to the thrift store and bought some lamps and just, you know, just went as far in the opposite direction as we could possibly go. And, um, and we kept doing that, you know, when we were out on tour with Oasis, then we came up with the idea because we always loved a disco ball, you know, and so then we decided we wanted to just have our own disco ball that belonged only to us. So we, so we got the disco ball and the motor and the shitty little disco light and um, made this funky armature out of a, out of pipe from the Home Depot <laughs> that we would hang the disco ball over Steve's drum kit. And then we had our disco ball and our lamps every night. Didn't have to ask the lighting guy to turn on the disco ball because we had our own. <laughs> How um, did this whole, like Sam's book and the reissue project first enter your life? And what has it been like? And how do you feel about all of this? Um, well, let's see. Sam got a hold of Steve. And then Steve kind of reacted to it in a negative way. He was like, there's some guy named Sam Sweet wants to write a book about acetone. And, uh, and I was like, that's cool, man. <laughs> like, right on. <laughs> and so I had his email, and I, and I sent him a message. said if he wanted to talk about acetone, you know, I'd be happy to do it. And, uh, and it just went from there. That was like 15 years ago. Wow. No, it was, it was no. It was nine, though, right? It was nine years ago. It just went on and on. Sam's had a whole life since that book started, written other books, had kids, put them through college. Run for office. Um, Nine-year-old disgraced mayor. And um, so, and, you know, we became friends over the course of it. Um, so it, it kind of, I'm sure, I'm sure it morphed. I, I never had a preconceived idea of what it would be. I can't speak for Sam, but uh, I don't know. It, it, it kind of a weird, weirdly therapeutic exercise, some way of purging the demons of the past by dumping them into Sam's lap and letting him deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, Sam asked, we were having lunch the other day, and he asked me why I let him do this. And uh, the best answer I could come up with was a, uh, momentary lapse of judgment because <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really a private person at the end of the day so it's a strange kind of um, endeavor but in the words of the Cornelius brothers and sister Rose it's too late to turn back now since the band stopped playing in the years that have passed what have you been doing um, well let's see um, playing music you know there's Dick Slessig stuff which is my other band that exists very sporadically um, can, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the name of the band let's see Dick Slessig well this is a band that we started I started with my friends Steve Goodfriend and Carl Bronson in 19 I don't know 1989-1990 because I was sick of this band spin out that I played in with Richie and Steve and, and this guy Tom Henry um, so Dick Slessig 
was just another, you know, it was like a relief from that. And, um, and it actually started out because I wanted to do covers of, uh, songs that were in the soundtrack to Pink Flamingos. Like there's all this great music in the Pink Flamingos soundtrack that is uncredited. You know, there's no credits for the music in there. I found out later that these songs that I wanted to do actually were Link Ray songs. Uh, I have that CD in my car. The Pink Flamingo soundtrack mm-hmm. is on freely. Yeah. Um, and um, so, so that's how that started out. But then it you know, kind of morphed and, and we got into doing these really kind of distended versions of songs that lasted for hours. Um, so there's that, you know, that's sort of an ongoing project. And then uh, did a bunch of stuff with Matmos, um, who are old friends of ours. So I've played on a bunch of their records and toured with them. Dick Slessig did a tour with Matmos. And I went out playing with Hope Sandoval in her band and um, and then started working for Mike Kelly and um, had a kid. So. And that's that. And that's that. But for me, understanding CalArts is the backdrop that kind of created this whole network of musicians artists who are also friends who also ended up working in the studios of other artists who ended up becoming teachers themselves um you know it it is this whole network one of the networks in la that sort of run runs behind all this cool stuff that happens and as you get deep into the cal arts history there are a lot of uh ideas you know, like John Baldessari, uh, you know, being the guy who in the 70s said, well, we don't even have to make paintings. We're just going to go outside and roll a tire down a hill and take pictures of it. And then that can be our art. And we're not even going to spend any time making anything. Um, and Baldessari is one of those figures that um, not necessarily a household name, but within the sphere fear the sort of subculture of LA that Astone grew out of he's a major figure um Mike Kelly's a major figure and um you know like you say there's so much information that sort of comes out of that all the appropriation stuff um you know it's Cal Arts is this single building on top of a hill <coughs> north of LA in Valencia um you know, and I think the culture of the art school has changed, but definitely from the 70s all the way through the 80s, it really was this weird, almost like a movie studio. It would be like producing all this stuff that sort of then flows into the greater picture of L.A. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it really, you know, I mean, it's it's just like a time and a place and a group of people that are in that place at that time. And it kind of blows my mind when I look back, you know, like, I think you sent me that flyer from the Far-Fetched show, which is, you know, could be considered the birth of acetone because that was a spin-out gig where our singer was kind of wandering around and we had to go on stage early and we just got on and played instrumentally. But I just look at all, all the people that we were in there with 
time. It was like Mike Kelly, Jim Shaw, you know, like all these same people that I'm, you know, totally wrapped up with. Raymond Pettibone. Yeah. And a lot of these guys, they started out on your level, but certainly guys like Mike Kelly and Raymond Pettibone graduated to that elite level of, you know, global art figures. Yeah. And so it's also funny just to think about, um, it's it's a chapter in LA. It's like a very specific chapter in LA's history that is actually really special because it's just distinctive to its time and to the characters involved, just like any other chapter in LA history. It's just never really been highlighted. And I think that was one of the things that attracted yeah. me to the book too, that of course I was interested in the band and the music and the personalities, but I liked the way it also connected to like a very distinct time and place and set of characters and sort of set of subcultures within LA history. And that through starting with these three guys who played in a band, you know, you could access this whole, that whole history of, you know, the artists who came out of Cal arts and, um, also, like what we were talking about in the car, the changes in the uh, music scene in L.A. and the 90s and, um, you know, just all these little tributaries through L.A. culture. Even when you said the other day that the first amp you bought with the acetone signing money had belonged to Billy Zoom from X and he sold it on consignment in a store in Sherman Oaks. And then you had to take it to Billy Zoom's house in Los Feliz to get it looked at. I love stories like it that. It took him forever to fix it. It took him forever. Too. And yeah. he was a, and he was the cantankerous guitarist then that you have since become, which is so it's become full circle. But it's I love anecdotes Say like that. Cantankerous? Absolutely. I, it's I uh test. I think you waited 30 years to become the old man you were always meant to be. I'm way less cantankerous now than I used to be. But I'm a fucking Pollyanna now, Sam. Yeah, that's probably (laughs) true, actually. Um, It's funny. I was uh, I rewatched Repo Man not too long ago, which is a movie that I totally love, and it really, you know, really just captures the that feeling of of what LA was like when, you know, like when we were starting out like it really like that's the movie i can point to that really like like i just watch it and i'm just like that that's the la of you know that i knew then and it's funny because then you know in that movie like the characters in the movie you know these guys like dick rude and xander schloss that you know that we knew they were sort of our you know had this they had this crappy band called the two free stooges that were like rivals of spin out and the like <laughs> scene and it was you know uh and, yeah you know, xander was you know he was a really good guitar player you know he's the you know played in thelonious monster and uh yeah you know so it's all like uh you know there's just all these threads of entanglement there that are you know, yeah I sometimes say that LA, the 80s are my favorite time in L.A. history just because it's the point of greatest overlap between the old city and the new city. It's just this point where 
there was a window where like hair metal existed and also silent film stars were still yeah. alive. Yeah, right. And the first skyscrapers were going up, but there was still just completely rural settlements near downtown LA that had not changed since they were built. And so even though it's sort of the eighties are in general regarded as this, uh, like this low ebb in culture in general and sort of like a heinous time in LA history. It was this point of extreme coexistence between stuff. You yeah. Know? Right. Like you could still see screaming Jay Hawkins playing at a club. You know, he lived at the Argyle or Charles Hotel Brown and you yeah. could see him playing in some weird, you know, playing at like Raji's who would play at Raji. And then and gangster Cor- rap and, and is Corla Pandit playing at the moonlight rollerway. I mean, yeah. Did you see Corla Pandit at Moonlight Rollerway? Roll oh, you did. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. No, he had. He was like a regular. Were you skating, or was he just? <laughs> yeah. He he did the skate. At, yeah, yeah. No, I, played, I didn't know that. Played, yeah, yeah. That's was, unbelievable. Yeah, so it was you know, amazing. Yeah, and it's that. That's one of the things when you say Mark. You know, there's this kid who came from L.A. or from Philadelphia to L.A. in 1985. It seems just like an extremely unremarkable year. You know what I mean? It's not like saying, oh, I went out there in 67 or <laughs> yeah. like 58 or yeah, 77. Right. But um, one of those uh, LA in the 80s, it, it was it was one of those, it's kind of my favorite time. And that's one of those things where it is captured in a lot of movies, like B-rate movies yeah. from the 80s and 90s. It's a really well-documented period accidentally in film, and I do like watching like bad action movies from the late 80s and early 90s because you do they capture that sense of like a city that had all this ancient, decrepit stuff colliding with all this like new modern urban ideas and um you know so it was kind of an amazing time for this group of kids you knew to sort of enter the city and start doing their thing and it was a weird void in the city's musical history too because punk had sort of run its course you know whatever grunge or whatever 90s music had not quite started and it was like a really polyglot scene yeah. in los angeles at that time mm-hmm. you just you know we look at flyers from that period and you just have bands doing goth and rockabilly and hip-hop and i also think the bands that were most popular at that time really represent like how absurdly polyglot the scene was like red hot chili peppers we're gonna do this punk funk thing or jane's addiction like whatever that kind of music is so it's (laughs) it's a really odd undefined time in history and again like that's not really what acetone story is about but i kind of like the idea that that's the stew from which acetone like (laughs) as the essence of acetone emerges from that. that there was no locus you know there was no yeah um, except for hair metal i mean if that was except bag, for hair but, metal um, right you know but otherwise it was like there's no order to this right reality like you do whatever the hell you want yeah right and no particular idea or maybe many competing ideas as to what it meant to be 
an LA band. Not that anyone is necessarily thinking about that, but um, but I always think of acetone as this thing too, where you sort of slowly coming out of CalArts in this huge stew of information, influences, people doing art, bands trying to do 10 different things at once, you know, over the years, the two guys you played with, your trio, everything sort of slowly falls away and falls away. And then the thing that acetone kind of finally becomes, I, I always think of that word distilled. It's like an interesting story of a band where it just felt like they kept shedding all the extraneous stuff to get towards this essence that was always there, but you just had to sort of keep molting these outer skins. And even though Aston was a band that had no real quantifiable success and never really registered in the outer world in any memorable way, to me, they always, their great success was like they became, they kept subtracting until like by the very end, it was just like the most distilled essence of what was between them the whole time. And to me, that's actually kind of a heroic story to tell about a band. again that was such a fun time <laughs> it was super fun we said bye and I was driving home I texted my friend my job is cool <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I do that all the time and it I mean you know like we do have a cool job a lot of the time it's sitting writing emails and it's boring and I am bored but a lot of the times it's riding around the hills of Highland Park <laughs> with a rock star and a writer <laughs> yeah we get to do cool weird things and the next day uh full disclosure i went back to the center for self-realization really yeah and had a little walk around the garden and it was beautiful and really peaceful did you hike up from the street no you drove i drove (laughs) i hiked up once you can like park down on uh what is it york or something whatever that street is down where the train station is you can park down there and Ah. walk up and um but it's not like you're walking through like paved residential streets so i don't know why i took the quick trip yeah that's (laughs) fine but (laughs) (laughs) like we said before the acetone anthology 1992 to 2001 and the companion book hadley lee lightcap by sam sweet are both available to pre-order now at lightintheattic.net and they will be in store September 22nd on vinyl, on CD, and digitally. You can also stream the album on Spotify and on Apple Music. Yeah. Um, cheers also to Huarache uh, Azteca on York for their delicious agua fresca. Oh my god, it was so perfect. So necessary. I had the melon. Mm-hmm. I had the 
cactus. What's it called? Nopal. Nopale. Sure. <laughs> or was we it like? Oh, is it not pepino? Uh, Cucumber one. It was cactus. Mm. It was so good, and I just like downed it. Yum. Yeah, we needed sugar and hydration. Thank you so much to Sam Sweet, to Mark Lightcap, Steve Hadley, and of course to our life-saving producer, Michelle Lands. And her dog, Dobby. And her dog, Dobby, who is always the best. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.